Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Everyone is talking about how do we get kids back in school. I think the question and the discussion with um, CTU is around how do we do that safely um, and making sure that the district is meeting its responsibilities to, to make sure people are safe. Hi, everybody. I'm Fran Spielman. With me today is Chicago Public Schools CEO Janice Jackson. Janice, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Last time you were on this show, it was during a teacher's strike. Now you're back under difficult circumstances also. You are preparing to start reopening schools on January 11th for pre-K and special ed students and on February 1st for kindergarten through eighth grade. And there's a deadline coming up for, for parents and teachers to opt in or out next week. Tell us about that. Yeah. Well, again, thank you for having me on your show um, to talk about this. If we can take a step back, when we made a decision um, earlier um, this at the beginning of the school year to go to an all remote environment, there were two things that we heard from our stakeholders, our families and our teachers. They wanted more time um, to understand the plan and make a decision. And they also wanted to see a more comprehensive plan and called on us to answer questions um, that, that they thought weren't clear in that initial plan. And so a couple of weeks ago, when we announced our uh, plan for reopening and in-person instruction, we did that with two months in advance in order to give our stakeholders more time to make that um, important decision about whether or not students will return to school um, come January and to also ensure that people had an opportunity to look through the comprehensive plan um, and make the decision that's best for them and their families. And the one thing that I will say is that I think the plan that we put out is the most comprehensive plan to date. And now we're giving every parent an opportunity to select the learning option that they think works best for their child. So let's say I'm a parent of a student and I'm on the fence about this. I'm concerned about whether it's safe. What should I do? Well, you know, I'm a parent as well. And so the first thing I'll say to people is that there are no right or wrong answers on this. Every parent has to do what's in the best interest of their child. But to date, the plan that we have in CPS only allows for an option if you are a parent, excuse me, who prefers uh, remote learning. The plan that we have announced um, that is set to start um, 
after the new year allows for all of our parents to have a choice. If you're a parent like myself who wants to see children back in school, who wants to see my own children back in school, we now have an opportunity to do that. But also if you're a parent who um, isn't yet comfortable with in-person instruction, you will still have an opportunity uh, to, to, to remain remote. Um, and I think that this gives parents the most choice. But this is the last chance. If you opt out, you're out till April. Is that right? And why is that? Yeah. Well, we had to put um, some parameters in place um, for a variety of reasons. Let's start with um, the ability to to opt out. If a family indicates now that they want to return to in-person instruction, they can opt to go to a remote option at any given time. We think that that's critically important because, again, we want to make sure that parents feel comfortable with their children being in school, that they feel comfortable with our plan. And so that flexibility has to be afforded to them. Um, on the other hand, we cannot allow students to opt in at any given time because it creates planning challenges for the teachers and the principals in the schools and also some health challenges. And so we really wanted to give parents enough time. They still have about a month um, in order to make this decision and to deliberate. But once they make a choice, we're asking them to commit to that choice for a period of time. Um, and it allows for proper planning so that students aren't entering and exiting school um, at different times. Health experts are saying that we should brace for a dramatic rise in COVID infections post-Thanksgiving. If that happens, and there's a similar spike again after Christmas, will CPS still be ready to reopen preschool and cluster programs in early January? Well, we are, as we said from the beginning, working directly with um, health officials um, here at the uh, city's Department of Public Health. And we published a criteria that um, we wanted the public to be aware of, also hold us accountable to, and falls in line with the best guidance from our health professionals. So they're looking at the rate in which cases double. Um, and again, that, that time needs to be at least 18 days or more. Um, we're well beyond that as we sit here today. Um, but as you pointed out and what we've learned from COVID is that those things change over time. And so we will be monitoring that closely. And if we don't feel that it is safe or feasible to reopen, um, we won't make that decision. But what I would say to people is that we publish the threshold and the criteria. And if we meet that threshold, the expectation is that we will return to in-person instruction um, at the beginning of the calendar year. So the 18-day thing is the key. That's the key, yes. A big part of reopening schools, though, isn't only about making the schools safe. It's easing the concerns of anxious parents and teachers. They are rightfully worried about their health and well-being. And the trust right now is not there. So the concerns have not been alleviated. Have you done a good enough job of proving that it's safe? I think the first part of that is um, communicating a a comprehensive plan, um, which we've done. We listened to our, we hosted those town halls over the summer, and we heard from people that they wanted more information. They wanted a comprehensive plan, and we took that feedback to to heart and made a decision to go remote. We published a a more fulsome plan. Um, We also published a parent handbook that I would um, direct listeners to to take a look at on our website, uh, the cps.edu reopening website that answers a lot of those questions. The next layer um, that we've added to our plan is also empowering our schools to do a lot of this. A lot of the questions are 
you know, scenario-based questions, and it's really difficult to answer every single question and assuage every concern at the district level. So we're asking our principals to host um, meetings with their parents and families to explain what it looks like in their school. What door will students enter? What does the temperature check process look, look like in this school? And so I think that our plan and communication is much more granular than it was um, in the summer. But with that said, in order for us to create a pathway for students to come back to school, we have to try. What I've said time and time again is that the, the negotiation or the, the debate, I should say, around whether or not kids should come back to school is over. It is clear that students need to return to school. Um, they've been out for a number of months. In a few months, we'll be closing on a year of um remote instruction for students here in Chicago public schools. And there are now several proof points across the country and right here in our own backyard with our private schools um, and our um, Catholic schools where students are returning to in-person instruction. And I believe that the kids of CPS deserve that same opportunity. And so we all have to try. The district and the city has to do um, we have to do our job and make sure that the resources are there, but teachers and leaders in our schools have to show up for our kids because they deserve the same thing that kids are getting all across this country. But even as CPS tries to shift to in-person learning for the third try, I should add, the majority yeah. of kids will likely still be at home as yeah. they are in other major cities. As yeah. a way to improve remote learning for those thousands of children, would you consider altering the current schedules that basically require kids and teachers to be online for the same time they were in school before? The schedules have worked for some, but yeah. lots of students, parents, and teachers are still having a really tough time with this required screen time. Yeah, well, I'll say a couple of things on that. Um, there, there have been some arguments made about, you know, why not just focus on improving remote learning? And the answer to that is that we have to do both. We have to improve remote learning as well as have a pathway for kids to come back to school because, after all, no matter what option uh, uh, individual family chooses, there will be remote learning in some way, shape, or form for kids across the district. And so we have to do both. Um, as far as um, the screen time, um, the, I will point people back to the guidance. I think our teaching and learning department did a really good job of um, making sure that the screen time was a grade level appropriate. We, again, listened to feedback from parents and the teachers union and made adjustments related to that earlier. But what we um, have a firm um, uh, stance on is we won't do anything that reduces the amount of instructional time that students receive. That's something that I feel strongly about and don't plan on making any concessions because our students have already lost so much um, with um, losing instructional time with the strike and now uh, due to school closures related to COVID-19. We will not sacrifice additional instructional time for our students. We will give schools more opportunity um, to balance the asynchronous learning and the synchronous learning, um, which we've done, but we won't sacrifice instructional time. But staring at a screen for that much time, hour upon hour, you know how hard that is yourself even. It is, and I and I also know that our schools and our teachers have done an amazing job of of 
of being, you know, creative and also flexible um, in those situations. But let's be clear. There's a there's a national study that shows what students, um, uh, what type of instruction they're getting in a remote environment across the country. And CPS is not at the top of that list. And so this notion that our students are somehow on computers more than other people, number one, simply isn't true. And I also think that there is a way, which we've been doing for the past few months, um, that, that helps our students learn and is uh, appropriate. Now, is it ideal? Absolutely not. That's why we're putting out a plan to bring kids back to school. So my question, my answer would be if people are concerned about that in-person instruction, it's probably going to be a better option for you and your family. Will there be a teacher or staff shortage? About a quarter of the pre-K and cluster program staff formally requested leaves of absence or accommodation, and subs are hard to come by these days. Yeah, so workforce um, is definitely something that we're working extremely hard on and another reason why we thought um, adequate um, lead time was necessary. So the first step in this, and the, the thing that I want people to understand is that any staff member that has pre-existing conditions or, um, you know, a situation that precludes them from participating in in in-person instruction, you know, will avail themselves of the FMLA policy and we will respect that policy. We don't want people who have pre-existing conditions coming to school putting themselves in in jeopardy or harm's way. We will make those accommodations. But the expectation is that everyone else will show up um, for our students. Right now, we are working through those applications that we have received and will be responding to employees um, in the coming weeks. And we feel confident that we will be able to um, provide uh, enough teachers and staff to support in-person instruction um, in our school system. Chicago Public Schools is a huge district. There's no doubt there may be a few outliers where we, we meaning the district, is going to have to step in and support with substitute coverage. But um, if I'm looking at the trends across the country, I think we're going to be in a good place. Again, I don't think uh, Chicago is going to be the place where we don't show up for our children when we have plenty of proof points across the country where teachers have um, you know, shown up for kids. I think the teachers here in Chicago are going to do the exact same thing. Well, what if there's are schools where a very small number of students opt in and a very small number of teachers do? Do you still forge ahead? Yeah. Oh, just to just to clarify, students opt in. Teachers don't have a choice of opting in or out. They will, uh, of course, apply for FMLA accommodations if they uh, if they need to. Um, but I just wanted to make that distinction. What's important um, in our plan that's different um, than it was in, in when we were talking this summer is that we are returning to in-person instruction um, for the families that indicate that they want it. So there is no threshold that we have to beat in order to activate an in-person instruction model. If 15% of the kids, I'm just making up a number, decide that, that, that they're going to return at any given school, then we will educate 15, that 15% in person. Um, and we believe that that number will gradually grow over time as people become more confident in our plan. Um, the vaccine that's on the horizon is giving us a lot of um, hope and opportunity for some um, return to normal, whatever our new normal will be. And so we have to start a pathway. And so our approach has shifted a bit. And our commitment is that we will educate any student who wants an in-person um, option. Uh, the numbers, there, there is no threshold. What about a teacher who doesn't have a pre-existing condition, but just is afraid? 
does that person get fired? Well, first of all, just to, just, to, just to step back, this this is a uh, this is a job. Um, people do have protections, and I don't want to, you know, go down the road of a hypothetical. What I will say is that we will be following all of our um, policies and procedures. We will be following the law, the law that affords people FMLA accommodations due to health conditions, et cetera. However, it's just like any other job. If the expectation is to return to work. And there is nothing precluding you from doing that that violates your your rights, your FMLA rights. The expectation is that people show up to work. And if they don't show up to work, it will be handled the same way it's handled in any other situation where an employee fails to come to work. That means goodbye. I think that we I think I think we made that clear. It's it's I mean, that's this is a job. You you have to show up and do your job. We're going to make clear, um, which we made clear, which is why the applications have been submitted, that if people have pre-existing conditions, if they have reasons that fall under the Family Medical Leave Act, we will respect that. But otherwise, we have a responsibility to the children of Chicago. And again, I wouldn't make a lot out of that because if we're looking at what has happened throughout this country, nowhere else in this country do we see teachers not showing up to support kids when they are able to do so. Chicago is no different. But the teachers union is still not behind this plan. Why not? Well, I think you have to ask CTU uh, that question. I don't want to speak CTU leadership. I don't want to speak for them. What I will say is that we'll continue to to, uh, meet with them um, and listen to their feedback. I think we've shown good faith in that regard. Um, Some examples um, I pointed out earlier, I think the work that we have done around air, uh, 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 around ventilation shows that we're listening to their concerns. We put out a comprehensive plan. Um, to ensure that our schools were ready. We made an $8 million investment on top of what was required to put air purification um, uh, filters in, in all of our classrooms. So I think that we'll continue to, to negotiate and have these conversations with them. We'll continue to listen to their feedback and make sure that people feel comfortable returning to our school. But I think where we are today, the debate around whether or not kids should come back to school is is a debate that we can no longer have. I think everyone believes kids need to be back in school, starting with our parents, as well as um, elected officials at the federal level. Everyone is talking about how do we get kids back in school. I think the question and the discussion with um, CTU is around how do we do that safely um, and making sure that the district is meeting its responsibilities to, to make sure people are safe. The union wants to know why you haven't done more to build an innovative COVID testing regime for staff and students. Yeah, well, we we actually announced in our plan um, the uh, advancements that we're making around testing. I think that the plan that we have uh, goes above and beyond what we've seen even in some other districts. So it's a two-pronged plan, first starting with surveillance testing, Um, for uh, all of our schools. And this is, again, going beyond what I see other school systems doing across the country. And then the second um, strategy uh, is to provide free testing for any student or staff member who is symptomatic or comes in contact with anyone who um, tested positive positive for COVID. So we're doing surveillance testing um, so we can identify any uh, 
you know, uh, COVID uh, transmission that has gone under undetected. And then for people who feel that they're high risk because they've been exposed or they have symptoms, we're providing free testing for everybody. So I think that's about as comprehensive as you as you can get um, short of testing everybody, you know, every week, which I don't think any school system um, is doing that. CTU Vice President Stacey Davis-Gates said this week that there have been two surveys, one last summer, one this fall, and that parents have said, no, thank you. Mm-hmm. I think this is, this is what I say to, to that. The, da- the data we should be paying attention to is the, the data around student access and how students are performing in this COVID environment. I think the first piece of data we should be paying attention to is the fact that we see huge disparities in participation for African-American students in every other group. That's a huge concern. And pointing to uh, a survey data from parents shirks our responsibility, the district's responsibility, as well as the teacher's union responsibility to educate students. It is not okay to, 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 to not do what is necessary when we see a vast majority of students, particularly a group of students that fall in one racial group falling behind. That's something that I um, feel strongly about. Um, and I think that it, it's wrong and it, it is us um, shirking our responsibility if we refuse to do what's necessary to educate them. I think the second piece of data I will point people to again is how students are performing in a remote environment. Once again, we see disparities where African-American students are failing classes at a higher rate than their peers. And so I'm all about looking at data, but we have to pay attention to facts and we have to pay attention to the real data. Our job is to educate students. And when we see data that is glaring, where a particular group that has been marginalized and, and under-supported and undereducated for decades in this country, why would we allow that to happen in a pandemic? That is important, and I think that they should be um, locking arms with us to call attention to this educational crisis that's happening, and we should be doing everything within our power to educate students. But they say you haven't hammered out a written agreement that could detail safety precautions and staffing guidelines and particulars of instruction with them. They say you're doing this alone. We, the, the bottom line here, Fran, we've published all of those precautions. Everything that we've listed falls in line with what the CDC has called for um, and what is happening in school systems across the country and across the world, as a matter of fact. There isn't a single thing that is not included in the CPS plan that is included in plans in other places where kids are back in school. So that's just patently false. We have done everything. It is documented. We have published that for the public to see and hold us accountable to. Um, We've made a huge investment in uh, PPE. um, And we take this seriously. We want our staff members as well as our students to be safe in our schools. But we have to have a real conversation about the threat of COVID in our schools and what we need to do in order to bring kids back safely. There is now research that we did not have in the spring, that we did not have this summer, that shows that schools are not the super spreaders that we thought that they would be. That was a that was a realistic hypothesis back then, but it has been disproven. Because it has been disproven, we have an obligation to make sure we're getting our kids back in school And some of these things, I think, are uh, 
you know, a distraction that, that don't help us do the work that is extremely hard, which is how do we bring kids back in a pandemic and begin to educate them? How do we create a pathway to get back to in-person instruction? Because I think everybody agrees that kids need to be back in school learning at some point. We need to have a conversation around what that is and what it's going to take for people to feel comfortable doing that. If in-person learning is so safe, then why not include high school students? Their high school experience has been altered indelibly by this. And some of the high schools are half empty. They could really easily do social distance. Why not at least try it there? Yeah, well, actually, that you you make a really good point, and we needed a little bit more time um, in order to, to figure out our high school plan. The current plan that we have relies heavily on the pod model, where students stay in a, a certain group, and if someone is exposed, it allows us to quarantine, call for quarantine for a smaller group of students and not close the whole school. It's much more difficult to do that in a high school setting because, you know, the kids, by nature of the way high schools are designed, they move around a lot more and see uh, more teachers throughout the day. Sorry about the uh, siren in the background. Um, As long as it isn't for you. Yeah. But what we are doing, right. (laughs) So what we are doing is um, making sure we're meeting with high school principals. Um, Chief McDade is meeting with high school principals right now to figure out what a second semester plan could look like. Um, We've had high school principals come to us and say, to your point earlier, we have enough space in our school to bring our kids back. And so we're having those conversations with them to see if we can come up with some individualized plans for our high schools who would be able to do this safely. Um, now, we do have some high schools um, that are large um, and, and, and the social distancing would, would be impossible. Um, and so that's where, where some of our challenges lie. But we are exploring that and people will hear um, updates related to that plan in the coming weeks. And you're lo- looking to when for that? Um, we're, we, it would definitely uh, not occur until the second semester. But again, we're looking at the feasibility of bringing them back. Uh, but we would in the spring. Uh, in no, the spring? no, no, no. Uh, sometime in the uh, sometime in the second semester. Yeah. So which any, would be like February, there. March? What would be the earliest? The the semester begins, I believe, on February eighth. I'm sorry, I don't have a calendar in front of me. Um, But again, no plans have been finalized. But what I want people to know is that we are having conversations with high school leaders to see if there's an opportunity to bring them back um, this uh, second semester. Do you have any clues to how many high schools might that be possible in? No, not at this time. Now, what happens if a class is half remote and half in person? A teacher is supposed to teach them both at the same time? Have you ever tried that in your teaching career? Oh, absolutely. You know, I did not taught almost 20 years ago. So a whole lot has changed for me. <laughs> but what I will say, what you just described is a, a model called simultaneous teaching, and it is new. Um, but what is important to note is it's a it's the dominant teaching model that's happening in these school systems across the country um, uh, and right here in Chicago, where they brought students back. Um, in Chicago, to be quite honest, is a little bit behind the curve because we haven't brought students back and we haven't been able to to 
to implement this innovation. But what I will point people to is the work that we've done around remote learning. If you had asked me prior to us uh, being thrusted into this around um, the, the type of instruction that's happening remotely, I would have said, you know, there are most definitely teachers that I think can teach in this manner, but not all. We have seen our teachers rise to the occasion and, and they have access to professional development that the district has offered. They've created their own local professional development. And, you know, there are teachers who probably only use the computer for their to check email and take attendance that are now using it every single day um, to educate. And they've become really facile in doing that. And I think that they're going to do the same thing um, with this switch to simultaneous instruction. There will be a learning curve and there will be heavy learning demands on our teachers in order to do this, which is why uh, we're working again to make sure that they have adequate uh, preparation time in order to, to meet these demands. But once again, um, the advantage of us starting a little bit later with in-person instruction um, as compared to other school districts is that we have proof points. Um, and we have models that we can implement um, and we can learn from uh, some of the districts and educators that have gone before us. Is CPS going to change the high school admissions process? How are selective enrollment applications going to work in the pandemic without some of the usual testing? Yeah, well, we, we actually, that process is actually underway. Um, Go CPS uh, launched on time um, and the deadline is fast approaching and we, we have started um, some testing. Um, we do have to uh, spend uh, more time testing because of all of the parameters around social distancing and we can't test the same number of students at the same time um, as we've done in the past. Um, but our process, uh, uh, we published some of those changes um, on our website. Um, as far as the in-person test that they would normally take in school, the NWEA test, um, because we can't administer that test, we actually looked at their past three administrations and would take the highest score of the past three. Um, but then we're also offering later um, uh, this this winter an opportunity for people to come in and, and take that test as well if they're not happy with the three options that they had before. So once again, providing an option for families who once don't feel comfortable coming into you know a, a setting with multiple people at this time, they could use one of those three options. Or if parents um, or students aren't comfortable with those three, one of those three scores, they can come in and be retested um, and we will implement the proper social distancing and other mitigation strategies so that they're safe while testing. When vaccines are available to everybody, will CPS require students to have them as they are now required for certain other vaccines? Yeah, well, we're, we're definitely um, excited about the news around uh, vaccines. Um, you know, I personally am. I've been counting down um, since since we've been, um, you know, facing this challenge. Again, we don't make those decisions. Um, we will be looking to uh, the guidance and requirements from CDPH as well as the Illinois uh, Department of Public Health. However, um, CPS is participating in the mayor's task force and tabletop discussions around um, the, the vaccination campaign and timeline. Um, we think that schools play uh, an important role in helping to communicate um, to communities. And we also know that, um, you know, people, there are some people who are going to be hesitant about the vaccine, and we just want to make sure that we provide them 
with the information um, so they can make an informed decision. And we also know that this is a huge equity play. We want to make sure that impacted communities are aware of their options, make informed decisions, but more importantly, um, are prioritized um, once the vaccine um, is distributed. But I don't hear you saying that kids would be required to have a vaccine. Yeah, we don't we don't make those decisions. So right now, the, the required vaccination that is not CPS policy, that is policy from the Illinois Department of Public Health. And so we'll be waiting to hear from them on that. So I don't want to. Do uh, how do you plan to enforce the mask wearing? Will that be mandated? Will a kid who doesn't yes. wear a mask be kicked out? Mask wearing is absolutely going to be mandated. Um, That is part of um, not only for their safety, but for the safety of others. So parents um, uh, who uh, send their kids to school absolutely understand this. Um, Again, just like we do with any other disciplinary issue, our goal is not to exclude students from school. Our goal is to educate them on uh, whatever the behavior is, whether we're, you know, trying to make sure they understand that, you know, uh, uh, fighting is the way you respond to a disagreement. We want to educate them on the reason why they're being asked to wear a mask and what their personal responsibility is in doing that, um, but also uh, what their social responsibility is in doing that. And once again, um, this is another place where I think CTS has an advantage that we're starting later than other districts. This is not a widespread issue. Our kids rise to the occasion. And from all of my years working in schools, one thing I can tell you is that children tend to adapt much faster than adults. So I'm not worried about the students um, uh, adapting to those rules. CPS enrollment is down 15,000 students. It's down to 340,000. In 2003, it was 434,000. And yet the plan to close three underutilized schools in North Lawndale that are two-thirds empty and replace them with a new school has been withdrawn for lack of community support, even though it came from the community. If they Mm -hmm. couldn't get community buy-in, how can you possibly confront the larger problem of declining enrollment and the fact that half of your schools are underutilized? That is a financial problem that you cannot ignore for very much longer. Yeah. Well, you everything you just said, I agree with wholeheartedly. I think that, you know, I've, I've made it clear that the enrollment issue <clears throat> that we face in CPS is the biggest issue we face as an organization. Um, we have to address this issue. Um, and, you know, I, like so many people, you know, have concerns about school closings. It's not something that I take lightly. Um, I think the model um, that we've seen um, in Inglewood, the model of, uh, that, you know, is has been attempted in North Lawndale is the right approach. But when you talk about community engagement, it, is, it does make the process longer. I think the North Lawndale plan um, is a plan that makes a lot of sense. But I also made a commitment that we won't make these decisions in a vacuum, that we will engage communities. And one thing that was clear, and, you know, this was largely due to COVID, you know, interacting and bringing people together is just much more difficult in this environment. Enough people didn't know about the plan. They didn't have enough time to to have a discussion about the plan. And so 
what we, um, you know, what we've committed to is just more in-depth community engagement. The district is going to, you know, do uh, provide more support to help people better understand the plan. But again, we haven't closed the door on this. Um, we think that it is a viable plan and a plan that deserves um, consideration. But we also don't want to make a decision that impacts people without them being um, a part of that process. But what about the other empty schools? What are you going to do? I think, I mean, my my personal opinion um, and planning uh, that, that we've shared is to look at this in a community-by-community approach. I think the first step um, is uh, we've made with the annual regional analysis, which is making clear what, you know, data we look at um, and how we're thinking about our portfolio of schools. Um, the second point has been the investment in some of these schools um, in the community because that's a big um, criticism that we heard, which is you just can't come in and solve the problem of numbers and capacity without talking about school quality and investment. And so the academic process where we have made, you know, investments in STEM and ID programming in neighborhood schools across the uh, city is something that we're going to continue to do. But again, uh, there are alarming issues around enrollment and, you know, what I said to people is there's no recruitment plan that solves this problem. We have more schools and more seats than we do students, and we have to come together and create a comprehensive plan um, for the city. But for my approach right now, it's going community by community. We started in Inglewood, a place where the enrollment was woefully low, brought a, a new uh, school there, and it's been popular and, you know, highly sought after by residents who live in the community, I think we'll be able to do the same thing in North Lawndale and communities across the city. Um, COVID now before we let you go, I'm sorry? I'm no, sorry. I said, yeah, COVID slowed us down a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And finally, before we let you go, your budget assumed $360 million from the federal government that has not come yet. It also assumed more money from Springfield that hasn't come and isn't likely to come. How do you plan to plug that gap? What do you plan to cut? Will it involve layoffs, increased class sizes? Yeah. Well, a couple of things. First, we believe that Washington should act with urgency, and I believe they will. Um, we're excited about the new administration. I think that, you know, there was a lot going on down there that got in the way uh, of, of this business of providing relief. Um, but again, this isn't a partisan issue. Everyone in America is struggling. And so I still remain, you know, in incredibly confident that Washington will act. Um, I also think it's important for people to know that the FY21 budget um, has a conservative estimate of what we expect to receive. And so I believe that, you know, even though we're confident in its funding stream, um, that, that we'll get through the year. If we um, see ourselves in a position, uh, which I think is highly unlikely, where Washington fails to protect schools from these unprecedented circumstances, we will take additional measures to balance our budget. Um, I don't, I don't want to list, I don't have a list of what those measures are now. You know that that's a process that involves the board, the mayor, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think there is a reason for anybody to be alarmed or worried about that. I still remain fairly confident that we will receive some relief in this school year. And is there any talk of you as education secretary? Is anybody in the Biden no. administration talking no, to you? No, that's just crazy stuff. No, I haven't talked to anybody. Okay. Janice Jackson, thanks so much for joining us. Good luck on the reopening plan and you stay safe out there. All right. Thanks, Fran. Goodbye now. And we'll see you all next week. 
Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.